Welcome, Grace Church. It is my pleasure to be able to be here with you today. My name is David Hildebrand. I'm one of the pastors at Northview Community Church, and today we're going to dive into the word of the Lord together. So, as we start off here, I want to ask a quick question. Can you remember back, I know it seems so long ago, when we used to be able to cross the border? When we used to be able to go over into the United States? I have packages myself actually waiting there on the other side of the border that I'm guessing I won't be able to pick up till 2037 or something like that, hopefully sooner. But at one time, we were able to cross over, and when you did, you immediately were presented with this option. So which lane am I going to go in? And so you'd kind of choose left or right, looking at the vehicles that were ahead of you. Okay, so there's an RV there. That's not the best. And, but that vehicle there kind of looks a little bit junky. It might take a little extra time. Okay, so you make your choice. And then you go ahead, slide into line. And then the other line starts to go faster. And you're wondering, this is strange. And then the car that was next to you now is significantly further ahead. And you go, okay, well, I have to change lanes now. So you wait for an opening and whoop, go ahead and slide in. And then, of course, the other lane starts to go faster. You're a little frustrated, but you know that redemption is right in front of you because your lane's now going to split into two. So now you have the option to choose again. You're going to redeem it. So here we go. So you once again try to assess the situation. All right, so I have a border guard there that looks a little bit frustrated, but that one's got a dog. So which way am I going to go? You make your choice, and of course, the other lane goes faster again. Now, maybe you're one of the people who always chooses the right lane. I don't know what that's like. I always seem to choose the wrong one. It's a bit of a silly illustration, but it does provide for us to be an opportunity to just kind of see that different paths actually can lead to different outcomes, that not everything leads to exactly the same situation, the same outcome. And our passage today is going to bring that up in a very real way for us. Our passage today is possibly not just one of the greatest portions of scripture, personal favorite of mine, but one of the most controversial, and maybe even in all of literature. It's an amazing portion of scripture. It's in John 14, so why don't we turn there together in our Bibles. John 14, 1 through 6 is where we're going to be spending the majority of our time today. And as you turn there, let's open up in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to dive into your precious word today. We just ask that by the power of your spirit, you would use your words to change us, to transform us into your likeness. We thank you that we can come to you today and hear your truth from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we start off here, we're going to be jumping through three different themes as we go through our time together here. First is be comforted, and then which way, and Christ alone. So that's kind of the roadmap, and as we start off here, first off is be comforted. And so our text today that we're going to start with, John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So let's uh, start off here with a little bit of context. We're jumping right in to John 14. So let's give a little bit of a backdrop, a little bit of understanding of what's going on behind the scenes here. So what we see is Jesus 
speaking to his disciples, and the disciples are troubled, it says. So why are they troubled? Well, it's actually just after the Last Supper. So it's a Thursday evening, and tomorrow is Friday, the day Jesus will be crucified. And so this last week has actually been a pretty good one. We've seen Lazarus being raised from the dead, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Everyone praising Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna. And yet those same people who cried out Hosanna will soon cry out for his blood in less than 24 hours. Everything in Jesus's ministry has been building to this point, the last three years, and the disciples can feel it. They know the tensions are rising, that things in Jerusalem are ratcheting up with the political leaders and the religious leaders, that this dam is about to burst, and they can feel it. And they're afraid. They're troubled. And not just because of that one instance. We also see that just right before this, what happens is Jesus tells the disciples at the Last Supper that one of them will betray him, as well as that Peter will actually deny him three times. What sort of events would cause that to happen? They're afraid. And they're still wondering, too. They're a little bit confused. You know, wasn't this Messiah supposed to usher in an earthly kingdom, a wonderful and amazing kingdom here, taking over Rome, and we'd be able to take positions of power, too, right? But this Messiah continues to talk about his own demise, his own death, his leaving us, and things that we don't totally understand the disciples are thinking that he's talking about that we're supposed to eat his body and drink his blood, which we now know as communion, but, but they're confused and they're scared and they're afraid. And here we see Jesus comfort them. Now, of course, it should be the disciples comforting Jesus, should it not? He's actually in agony in this very moment, preparing to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat blood is how much anguish he is in. And yet he is the one comforting his disciples. He is the one reassuring the disoriented and fearful friends he's walked with over the last three years. So how does Jesus comfort them? Well, we see in the text there that first he makes a claim of divinity, saying to them, you believe in God, also believe in me. And he's done that many times over the past three years. We've seen that throughout the book of John as as you have gone through it. I'm sure you've noticed it. He's constantly referring to himself and the Father being one. He's talking about how he alone can forgive sin, which is something only God can do. So that's not a new thing by any means. And then he goes on to talk about the Father's house. And in John 2, you might remember that he actually talks about the Father's house as well, but there he's referencing it to the temple, I mean, he references it there. It's a place that God dwells in the midst of his people. It's beautiful. But here, when he references the Father's house, he's talking about our eternal dwelling. He's talking about the Father's house where we get to dwell with him forevermore. He's talking about heaven. And John MacArthur says it quite wonderfully here. Sometimes heaven is called a country because of its vastness. Sometimes heaven is called a city because of its inhabitants. Sometimes it's called a kingdom because of its ruler and order. Sometimes it's called a paradise because of its beauties. And sometimes a house because of its family. Now this is such a wonderful text here that will actually go from black and white and pop into color 
for us as we kind of dive into the ancient Near East context that it's written in during Jesus' day, how the disciples would have viewed it. And so then, when a young man would have been betrothed to a young woman, when they would have been engaged, the young woman would actually have returned to her home and been separated for a time from her future husband. And he would have gone and built an actual room, an attachment to his father's house, an extension on that particular house. And when it's completed, which could have taken months, he would go and meet, once again, his eagerly awaited bride. And together, they would go and live in their new home together. And this is a wonderful picture. This is the grid that the disciples are hearing Jesus' words through. Jesus is preparing a place attached to the Father's house for them, and he will come and gather them and bring them home. It's wonderful, and it's beautiful. And even us now today can relate to this because we are the church, his bride, and we eagerly await our bridegroom, Jesus. We eagerly await his return to gather us and take us home, do we not? It's a wonderful and beautiful section of scripture. So again, the disciples here are scared and Jesus comforts them. And what's interesting is not just what is said, but actually also what's not said. Jesus doesn't deny their circumstances. He doesn't try to make the situation better in some way. What he does is actually point them beyond that situation. This summer I went to Peachland with my family. I uh, three wonderful young kids and a beautiful wife. And we went together, kind of going through Merritt and, uh, and to Peachland to spend some time up there. And uh, it was late in the evening. We had work during the day. And so we left and it was dark already. And a few, maybe 30 minutes outside of Merritt, I lost power steering. And we didn't have any cell service out there on the Coquihalla where we were. And so we wouldn't be able to call BCA or anything. So we just kind of kept going. And then eventually, every single light lit up on the dashboard, ones I've never seen before. I don't even really know to this day what they do, but I know it's bad. And so uh, I lost acceleration and all power and just kind of pulled over to the side of the road in between the two lanes of traffic. It was the only place we could pull over at the time. And praise God, we had cell service then. So we called BCAA and said, hey, we need some help. They said, a tow truck will be there in a few hours. Uh, but it was about midnight and uh, pitch black. We didn't even have hazards or anything because everything was dead. And so the kids were a little afraid. They were scared and overtired, and so that didn't help. But cars are coming by, big semis, and they're shaking the vehicle in the pitch dark. And um, they were afraid. And so I wanted to comfort them. And what I didn't do was just say, well, get over it. Don't be scared. Don't think about it. What I did was point them beyond it. I said, kids, soon, very soon, you will be in bed again, wrapped in blankets, and you'll wake up and we'll have breakfast and then we'll go swimming together. I pointed them beyond it and that's what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't comfort the disciples by saying that they won't suffer or that they won't be martyred, which most of them will be, or even that they'll find joy in the midst of the suffering, which may be true, but that's not what he points to here. He points them beyond it. That their father's house, that heaven awaits them and that he will come and gather them and take them there forever in the family of God. It's beautiful. Now, if I'm honest, as I was 
putting this together, I don't reflect on the reality of heaven enough. It's just, I, I don't. And do, do any of us really reflect on the beauty and reality of heaven in our lives? How would that change our life, our daily aspects of that that we go through in work and play and everything else, if we had a view of what lies ahead, that this is temporal, that this is just for a time and our true home lies ahead of us. Beautiful and amazing and joy-inspiring and helps you endure whatever you're going through. Gives you boldness. Because we know what lies ahead. How would that change our lives? If we reflected on the goodness of God that lies ahead rather than some of our struggles in the here and now, knowing that the Father's house awaits us. Jesus makes clear to the disciples that he is preparing eternity for them, which leads to a very honest response from Thomas, which is what we're going to jump into now in our next portion of text, in our next point, which way? John 14, 4 and 5. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now here we see the disciples are actually in such great despair and fear They're so troubled, they're not even fully grasping everything that Jesus is saying about the Father's house. They're not even fully being comforted with what Jesus is saying, even though it's beautiful. They are still slightly afraid. They want to know which way. So here we see Thomas ask maybe one of the most important questions he could ever ask. How can we know the way? How can we know the way? Jesus, we want to be with you forevermore. We want to be in the Father's house. How can we know the way? Which way? Now, in a moment, we're going to see Jesus answer this question in a definitive way. But let's just press pause for a moment and let's contemplate that question. Which way? Is this not the question that everyone asks? You and I and every other person, which way? Which way to life? Which way to joy? Which way to peace? Which way to happiness? Which way to contentment? I want to be there. Which way? Which way do I turn? And let's just put off to the side that idea that Christians aren't supposed to seek joy or happiness. That's not true. We were created to seek joy and happiness. It's how God created us to function. Every person on earth is designed to seek joy and happiness. It's just that we find that joy and happiness primarily in God, our Father, not in the created things in this world. It's how we were created to function. Nothing else in this life can satisfy us. We were created for an infinite relationship with an infinite being, devotion to the almighty king. And when we seek out joy and happiness in the things of this life rather than God, it will never satisfy. It can't. Which way, Thomas asks, and which way is what we ask? Like someone shipwrecked in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, without water for days, so parched, the throat and the mouth and the lips, 
longing for water until eventually they scoop up some water from the seawater and begin to drink it. And for a moment, it satisfies. It moistens the lips and goes down the throat and it feels good, but then they end up thirstier. And so they take more. And again, for a moment, it satisfies, but then they seek more. And that cycle continues ultimately until their demise. When we seek life where it is not found, it only leads to pain and ultimately leads to destruction. Sure, momentarily, for a moment, we might find satisfaction. We might find pleasure. We might find a moment of peace. But it will not last. We will, in the end, be thirstier than ever. And this world screams with ways that we can satisfy those longings in our hearts. You'll be content if you go in this direction. This way over here leads to happiness and this joy and this peace and this contentment. This way, this way, this way, this way. Do this, do that. Sometimes in the most foolish of ways, we find it or we attempt to find it. Have you ever listened to one of those infomercials or watched one on late television or on YouTube or something where they're selling some extremely gimmicky thing? And you kind of watch in the beginning because you kind of want to maybe make fun of it a little bit. Okay, so yeah, that's interesting. Oh, a, a kitchen knife. Okay, yeah, that's no big deal. Wonder what they're going to say about it. Oh, well, that's interesting. It's the last knife I'm ever going to have to buy. Seems pretty good, actually. Oh, and only three easy payments of $19.99. Okay, well, that's pretty good for the last knife I'll ever have to buy. And then the kicker, and this knife can cut through a shoe. Wow, you know, I don't think I have any knives that can cut through a shoe. That's interesting. I need this knife. And deep down, you have this longing that somehow you'll find some amount of pleasure, some amount of happiness in the purchasing of this knife. And so you buy it, and then it sits there, and you move to the next thing, because now that's going to bring you happiness. And the next thing, because that's going to bring you happiness. Sometimes in the strangest places, we seek momentary happiness and pleasure. It just doesn't ultimately last. We need to ask ourselves regularly, what paths, what ways have we been seeking contentment apart from God? The world is constantly bombarding us with the many ways it tells us that we can find pleasure and happiness and joy and peace in all these things. And it's easy for us to be dragged this way or that. So we need to ask ourselves, what ways have we been seeking those things apart from God? Perhaps it is consumerism like that knife, right? You kind of buy this and then you want the next thing and the next thing, but it never truly lasts. Perhaps it's entertainment where you find distraction from the things of this world. Maybe it's comfort. Perhaps it's competition or authority over others or you find it in your work or sex or flattery or gossip or on and on and on it goes. But none of these things ultimately will lead to life. Even in the good blessings that God brings about in our lives, like family or a spouse or children, if we put the weight of them satisfying our longings for joy and peace and happiness, it will crush them. They cannot deliver. Only God can handle that weight because only God truly gives peace that lasts and joy that lasts. 
Only in him is life truly found. Which way, Thomas asks, which way? And Jesus responds with one of the most clear statements in all of scripture, which is our next point and the last portion of scripture today. Christ alone. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We live in a world today where it's offensive to believe in objective truth. That truth exists. That it is a static thing that whether we choose to believe in it or not, it just is. Our world leans into that idea, particularly our Western world of subjective truth. Well, truth is just kind of what I believe it to be. So you can have your truth and I can have my truth and that just means that those things are real and somehow all these contrasting truths all exist at the same time. It's illogical and unsustainable ultimately. But I want to focus for a moment on how some of that belief of just experience and truth being personal has begun to seep into the church through the heresy of universalism. Universalism, which is, to be sure, a heresy, where it believes that, I mean, it has many trunks, sorry, it has many branches, but one trunk that believes everyone is saved. Ultimately, everyone ends up in heaven. Famous authors like Rob Bell have perpetuated this idea that, well, God is love, and because God is love, then he'd never send anyone to hell for eternity. It's just not possible. Or perhaps that idea that, well, all paths lead to God. God's like at the top of a mountain, and all these paths go up, and we're all taking different ones, but we all end up in the same place, right? Well, these things, these ideas don't just have massive philosophical issues, but also many inconsistencies. Rob Bell is right that God is love. He's right. But he disregards the reality that just as much as God is love, he is also holiness and righteousness and brings justice. And sure, the idea of the everybody lends up in the same place sounds good for a moment, but it leans on this idea that all beliefs are basically the same. They're just slightly different, little differences on the top, but you have to stay on the top of any belief to truly believe that once you dive into any belief system, you will see there are massive differences. There are inconsistencies that cannot be brought together, that they are not leading to the same place. They contradict each other in essential ways. We're not just talking about different paths to the same mountain. We're talking about different mountain ranges altogether. They do not and cannot lead to the same place. Now, because we don't have the time fully, I wish we did, but because we don't have the entirety of time that I'd love to have today to dive into all the issues of universalism, we're going to deal with the main issue, which is that it is unbiblical. The scripture does not support it in any way. Our English translations, as they say, as we read, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, is a great translation, but the Greek lends itself a little more to that idea of Jesus saying, I am the way to truth and life. It's not that Jesus isn't also truth and life, but that he is the way to truth and life found in God. This is who he is. 
He is the only way because as Christians, we know that we are sinners in rebellion to God, that we have rejected him, that we have walked away by nature and by choice and chose to reject him. And there is no amount of penance. There is no amount of good works that we can do to become right with a holy and perfect God. There's no rituals we can perform. There's no prophet's teachings we can follow that will make us right with the almighty and perfect and holy God that we serve. It is only through the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be saved. It is only through him. The other day I was at Boston Pizza, uh, Boston Pizza with my uh, younger daughter. And she's five and she was kind of going through some of the different mazes in one of the kids' puzzles, kind of hitting those dead ends, right? And so she's going, and then she'd kind of just whoop, go all the way on the page, go around, and go to the finish line. And I was explaining to her, you know, you know what, sweetie, there's actually a way that gets to the finish line here. What you're doing, you're hitting the dead ends. Those are actually counterfeits. They don't lead to the finish. But there is one particular path that does lead to the finish line. You just need to find which one that is and it will lead you there. Let me read Jesus' words again. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is no one-off verse either. It's not like we're taking this out of context and we just totally don't understand what Jesus is saying. He says this sort of thing over and over in the book of John as well as the New Testament. John 8, 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, the Messiah. John 10, 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. It's through him that we come to salvation. Over and over, you'll hear that I am statement in John It's a wonderful and a beautiful statement. And Jesus says it over and over and over again. And he does so on purpose. That's the name of God in the Old Testament. I am. And Jesus is applying that to himself over and over to his Jewish audience saying, listen, do you get it? It's very overt over and over. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the gate. Jesus is the way to truth and life. C.S. Lewis is known for stating that Jesus didn't leave any option open for us to believe that Jesus was just one of the ways to God that he's just a good moral teacher, right? With what Jesus claimed, who he was and what he said, that that option just isn't open for us. And he would say that the options that are open are only three. Jesus is either a liar, he's deceiving us, he's a lunatic, he's crazy in what he says, or he is in fact Lord. He is Lord. And some want to add in legend into that, saying that Jesus' reputation and everything just grew over time. But if you understand the early manuscripts that we have and the distance between that and Jesus' death, 
There's not enough time there for a legend to grow, and any historian will tell you that. Liar, lunatic, and Lord, those are our three options of how we see him. We all know, not just Christians, but just historians in general, that there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived and did some significant things, and people might differ on what those things are or how they played out, but they have to reconcile this idea that either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. What he says is true. We also know that his teachings are very clear because of what his followers wrote about him once he ascended. Let's, Let's pay attention for a moment. What did they say? So once he was gone, what did they pick up from him? Luke says, In Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Paul says in 1 Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus, the Messiah. The first name given to the disciples, to the followers of Jesus, was not Christians, but the way The way, not a way, not one of the ways, but the way. And most of them lost their lives because they believed that. You don't get killed for believing that Jesus is one of the ways, but that he is the only way that leads to truth and life everlasting. Christianity was not founded on a teaching like every other religion It is founded on the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. It is very unique in that way. Now, the clarity of Jesus' words in this text should free us. We don't have to wonder about what's coming to pass when we die. We don't have to wonder about which way, which way. God makes so very clear a way exists to be in the Father's house forevermore to find truth and life then and now. And that way is Jesus Christ. He makes it so clear. And Jesus declares it with clarity in our text here today. And so if you're someone who has not given your life to Jesus yet, then I pray that today is that wondrous day for you. That if you've been traveling down every path, looking for happiness, for pleasure, for joy, but you've been heading that dead end over and over. If you've been drinking from that water that never satisfies but only leaves you thirsty again and again and again, come to the one that provides living water forevermore, that gives you grace and mercy and love, that displayed his love for you upon the cross bearing your sin and shame, that you might be free now and forevermore, that you might be made right with a holy and loving God, with your Father. May today be that day. And if you're listening to this as a Christian who treasures Christ above all else, then our text would challenge us in that Are we living in light of this text? If we believe that Jesus is the only way, then do our lives reflect that? That there is a wide road that leads to destruction. 
And many will walk on that path, but there is a narrow road that leads to life and only a few will find it. Do we believe that? That our loved ones, your loved ones, my loved ones, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, that if they don't give their lives to Christ before their final breath, that they will be eternally separated from God. If we believe that, would we not be on our knees for them all the more? If we believe that, wouldn't we risk the possibility of awkwardness, the possibility even of rejection? Wouldn't we reject the fear of man and open our mouths and share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's not in how you share it. You have to do it perfectly in some way. No, the power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will do what only he can do. Change and transform hearts in his perfect timing. We can trust in him. So do our lives reflect that we truly believe this text. On that day of judgment that will come to pass, may it not be that any lost person who has rejected Jesus would look over at those of us, at yourself or me, who has been saved and say, why didn't you tell me more? Why? I know I pushed back a little bit, but why didn't you speak more about the truth and the love and the life found in King Jesus? May that not be the case. May we live our lives in light of the truth that Jesus states that he is the only way to the Father. And may our lives reflect that truth in our words and in our deeds. Church, if we believe in what awaits us, heaven, eternity, God's family, the Father's house, that Christ is preparing a room for us forevermore, and if we believe that Jesus is the only way, do our lives reflect it? I know it's a hard word, but it's the words of Jesus in our text today. And we're not just left on our own to share this gospel. We've been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to share the truth and grace and love of Christ with all those we come across. This week, may we share the good news in both word and deed, that there is one way that leads to life. One answer that satisfies the thirst we have. And that way is the name Jesus Christ. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We thank you for the clarity found in this text. You have provided the way in Jesus Christ. You bore our sins, our shame. You took all of that rejection that we have placed towards you and you offer us life instead. May we live in light this week of all you have done for us, of the truth that you are Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. 
And may we open our mouths and share that truth with everyone we come in contact with, knowing that you are with us and you will give us the courage and the boldness and the wisdom of what to say and when to say it. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.